Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why you should never wash raw chicken, the story behind a place called the Island of the Colorblind, and the forgotten campaign to create a 13-month calendar. Let's satisfy some curiosity. You should never wash raw chicken. You heard that right. You are not supposed to wash raw chicken. And knowing why will help you protect yourself and your family and friends from potential food poisoning. Here's the deal. One of the most common causes of food poisoning in the U.S. comes from bacteria you find in raw chicken. These nasty cells are called campylobacter, and they're typically found on meat and poultry that's been contaminated during processing. If your chicken has been contaminated and you splash water on it, bacteria will spread to everything the droplets touch, as in your hands, cooking tools, kitchen counters, and clothing. Yikes! So don't use water. Instead, here are a few pro tips from the UK's National Health Service to avoid food poisoning from raw chicken. First, keep it covered and chilled. Be sure to store your chicken at the bottom of the fridge to avoid dripping contaminated juices on other food. Also, remember to wash your hands and used utensils. Make sure everything that has come in contact with the raw chicken has been thoroughly scrubbed. And finally, remember to cook chicken thoroughly. Your chicken should be steaming hot all the way through, have clear juices, and no pink meat. Use a meat thermometer if you have one to ensure the chicken has reached at least 165 degrees Fahrenheit or 74 degrees Celsius. Whatever you do, just say no to chicken baths. If you wash your chicken, it's you that'll end up in hot water. You probably know that when someone says they're colorblind, what they're probably saying is that they have red-green blindness, not that they see everything in black and white, literally without other colors. What you might not know, though, is that there is a place where colorblindness runs rampant, and on that island, the inhabitants do in fact see in almost entirely black and white. I'm talking about Pingalap Atoll, and it's literally known as the Island of the Colorblind, since Oliver Sacks gave it that nickname in 1996. It has a pretty cool backstory that effectively comes from one person. In 1775, the atoll was devastated by a typhoon, and only a few survivors made it through the storm. According to the oral history of the island, one of the survivors was the king who helped repopulate the island quite liberally by leaving a lot of descendants. And he had a rare condition known as achromatopsia. Fast forward a couple of centuries, and achromatopsia on Pingalap Atoll is about as common as left-handedness is on the mainland. Now, for some perspective, red-green colorblindness isn't particularly uncommon among certain people. About 8% of men have it, along with about one half of 1% of women. Achromatopsia, on the other hand, affects only about 1 in 30,000 people. But on Pingalap Atoll, the condition affects about 1 in 10 people. Yeah, pretty high density there. Now onto the science of how color vision actually works. You've got three types of cone cells in your eye. Some are sensitive to red, some to green, and some to blue. Achromatopsia happens because none of the cones function properly, which leaves you with only the bright, sensitive rod cells to do all the work. Rods only detect the intensity of light, so they can only perceive in grayscale. But there's another side effect. People with achromatopsia also tend to be very sensitive to bright light. That can make daily chores on a sunny island pretty unbearable. The upside is that achromatopsia does come with excellent dark vision, which is handy for another island tradition catching flying fish by night using a bright fire suspended from a boat. 
If you're having a hard time imagining what it might be like to live with this condition, then I've got some good news. A Belgian photographer named Sonne de Wilde put together a fantastic art installation with pictures that use infrared settings and black and white filters and lots of other ways of playing with color. The result was an art project intended to make people reconsider their relationship to color and to try to understand what a color actually is outside of how it's experienced. Just like the Oliver Sacks nickname, she called the project The Island of the Colorblind. And you can find links to that in our full write-up on this on Curiosity.com. Today's episode is paid for by NHTSA. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late, to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you can feel a bit tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Well, don't. Ever. Seriously. Trains are often going a lot faster than you expect them to be, and they can't stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. By that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you... You know what? It's probably better not to think about that. The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop even if it sees you. The result is disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way. And you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. Calendars can be confusing. I mean, some months have 30 days, some have 31 days, and let's not even talk about February. Well, once upon a time, an accountant for the British Railway reinvented the annual calendar to have 13 months. And today, we've got the story of why it didn't catch on. The man I'm talking about is Moses B. Cotsworth. For some reason to me, if I had to give a name to a British accountant in the early 1900s, Moses Cotsworth would absolutely be it. I mean, it's perfect. He just seems like he's from an old-timey play or something. <laughs> like, he's, he's the Scrooge. It's a great name. Around the turn of the 20th century, Cotsworth was running into issues with the calendar. Long story short, he couldn't compare the railway company's revenue from one month to the next and immediately recognize how things were going. It was hard to see if there was a change in actual customers from month to month or if revenue changed because of other variables like differences in days from month to month. That's why Cotsworth designed a new calendar with 13 months of exactly 28 days each. The day of every date was always the same, so the first would always be a Sunday and the 13th would always be a Friday, etc. Cotsworth's 13th month was called Sol for the summer solstice, right between June and July. The leap day was also moved from February to a place at the end of Seoul. To round out 365 days, Cotsworth added Year Day after the 28th of December as a global holiday that belonged to no individual month. Sounds great, right? Well, it kind of was. In fact, it was wildly popular with businessmen at the time, including George Eastman, who was the founder of Kodak. In fact, Kodak implemented the 13-month calendar in 1924, and it stayed in place organizing the company's finances and production all the way until 1989. But while businesses liked the predictability, everyday Americans did not. The biggest problem may have been the destruction of Independence Day, also known as the 4th of July. The calendar's approach to holidays was to place them on the Monday closest to their original date to allow for a three-day weekend, when it came to Independence Day, the adopters had two options. They could either keep it in July, but place it on a Monday, which would make it the 2nd of July, or keep it where it was in the year, which would make it the 16th of Seoul. And apparently, Americans were not cool with either option. So the idea eventually died out. But that doesn't make it a bad idea. It just seems that sometimes the fix for a problem is more effort than it's worth. 
I love that Americans weren't cool with it just because it would make the 4th of July the 2nd of July. I mean, there were other issues too. Like your birthday would change, right? Like all sorts of things would change and we're, we're very attached to our holidays. That's true. You can read about today's stories and more on curiosity.com. And if you want to support this podcast, you can sign up to make a one-time or monthly contribution on our Patreon page. Special thanks to some of our existing patrons, Mary Rose, Scott Gates, Hayden Fossey, Maximilian Dikarev, Paul Larson, and Emily. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.